All right, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ego Check with the DM. I am your host, Michael Mallon, and I'm really excited today to be joined by Tomo Morawaki. He's worked in the past as a creative director for Activision, and a lead designer and producer for Electronic Arts. Uh, since 2014, he's been the chief creative officer with Hyperkinetic Studios, which is an independent developer based in Los Angeles and Austin, uh, Texas, which I used to live in Houston, so I uh, have fond memories of being in Austin back in the days when you can travel and go visit places. <laughs> um, HyperConnect Studios is making games, applications uh, for a wide variety of platforms. And I'm excited to speak with him today as he's the, I think you described yourself as the design director for Epic Tavern, uh, which has really been one of my go-to quarantine games over the last month. I've put in about 20 hours into it. I've really been enjoying it. Um, you can get that game through Steam. It's in early access form. Tomo, welcome. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. Uh, excited to be here. So if you'd be willing to share a little bit about your background as a designer, how did you get into gaming in the first place? Uh, it seems like it's been uh, a career, certainly, for you. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, things started off pretty organically. I think I was a bit of a ineffective student. I had a, I, my, my, my gaze was distracted by video games and I think my life kind of just started getting nat kind of unconsciously sucked into that sphere. Um, thankfully I was paying some amount of attention, um, and, uh, started turning it into a hobby at least at first and then found an opportunity to get into the game industry. Um, I think the joke I like to tell is that I'm a, a, a drug addict trying to design drugs to create better highs for myself and my friends. And of course, <laughs> in this case, that substance is interactive experience. Um, it's also a little bit of a joke about kind of how so many of the things in our lives that it, it is either addictive in its bad way or it is something that you're passionate about in a positive way. Um, but yeah, that, that, that career has been going on since 1997 and uh, I've had a lot of really great opportunities to learn about how to design experiences for others in that period of time. Um, kind of, you know, the big claim to fame was uh, being creative director on Spider-Man 2. Uh, that was an enormous experience and very transformative for me. Uh, I went from being kind of a punk kid to at least the beginnings of caring about responsibilities, uh, starting to see things more holistically, realizing that half my job as a designer is understanding the people who are going to play the game. Um, and that process has continued on to today. And uh, in the context of uh, Hyperkinetic Studios and Epic Tavern, at least one way to describe Epic Tavern is that it's uh, our the developer's kind of PhD dissertation on combining gameplay and storytelling. Wonderful. And that really connects with a lot of things I care about as we were uh, getting ready to record, just talking about my background as a psychologist and being interested in motivations to play all different types of games, whether it be tabletop, um, video games, and really the feedback systems that are part of a game and, you know, what, what brings you back, what keeps you playing. And it sounds like that's something that you're very thoughtful of from your point of view. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think that the kind of overly reductive thing to say is that anything human beings do with other human beings kind of cares a lot about motivation and 
uh, grabbing attention and engaging that intention. Um, and so to get away from that ultra-reductive way of saying it, though, is that if my goal is to uh, profit off of engaging attention, uh, then I definitely better be studying it. And it turns out to understand it, it's not so much like that, like, uh, um, you know, there's simple things like a big bang is going to gather more attention than a little whisper, depending on the circumstances. Um, it, it, all the nuance and subtlety is, is, is in the audience, right? That different people like different things and standing common ground between the things might be a way to bring different audiences together. And with your, with your background in the industry, have you classified different types of gamers or is it more blended than most people think? Well, so, you know, segmenting the audience can be as sophisticated as the data you have at your disposal as kind of a starting point. But I think that there is lots of different types of gamers. I think that you have almost every, well, especially with the introduction of mobile games and really the ubiquitous nature of, of smartphones, we now really are getting close to like thousands of different models of enjoying interactive entertainment. I think that back when I started off, you know, I was a, started off in old school PC kind of before the kind of, I guess at the, just about at the beginning of the first major PC cataclysm. Um, and that those gamers had a, you know, like a proclivity for difficult to understand things that they're going to burn a bunch of time into and don't like their hand being held and have, you know, would be offended if the tutorial was too clear. Uh, then, you know, transitioning into the kind of the middle era of uh, console games, which at first definitely very much this old description of the hardcore gamer and those kinds of players that want action, they're filling their time with adrenaline. Um, and that may, like that may be the substance that they may be addicted to in that case. Um, and they're expecting games to deliver that. So if a game kind of comes in, you know, imagine trying to make a game like Animal Crossing in the late 90s or early 2000s. It may not have been the perfect timing for it, although, it short, you know, everything changes very quickly. And so as our as audiences expanded, we get more and more types of gamers. And I think and, you know, if we bring it fast forward to today. Mm -hmm. Epic Tavern definitely designed with this idea that is very much counter to like the early 2000s in console, even if that was where I kind of got my start. Um, if anything, maybe partly is an exploration into um, putting my money where my mouth is when it comes to making content for a specific group of people. Yeah, and you've described in some other interviews that Epic Tavern is, I think you might even said more of a, a chill game or a chill out game where it's not high on action there's there's not a lot of button mashing or anything like that it's very story driven and there's kind of some resource management things going on uh building up a roster of, of heroes um it's kind of more in that you could end up playing for you know five minutes and make some meaningful progress or you could which i've done spend a couple of hours uh cranking away on things. And it does feel like a game that you can approach at your own pace. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think the key piece of that is there being no time pressure. To be fair, there is a very small element in the game that has a mild time pressure to it. But aside from that, it is specifically that at any moment, you could just stand up and walk away. Anything else that takes priority in that moment can take that 
can take that priority, which can be a little bit of a scary approach to take because I feel like, especially when I was younger and a lot of my peers, like we were a little bit, you know, it would stress us out this idea that the player would walk away because we, we knew better how to hold on to players' attention than we did how to get it back. And I think it, it kind of fits into this idea, like back in the early 2000s, you might have found many game developers saying this sentence, which I'm going to say, but I got a caveat saying I don't like this sentence at all. Okay, sure. Video games and story have no, have no, don't have anything to do with each other. Wow, okay. <laughs> and so it's like, I, and it might have come out of my mouth a few times back then, uh, but if it did, I'm very embarrassed about that. To be fair, we're all ignorant at some point. <laughs> um, but, Lessons um, are learned. Yeah, this this idea of a story and a narrative and a theme and this kind of – this really what the vast majority of people on Earth see as the fundamentals of entertainment, uh, when we're making action games, so many of us were kind of like hopped up on the adrenaline and just – just tuning and tweaking like controller interaction timings and everything was intended with so much focus on the visceral nature of the experience that like not just that we didn't care about the story, right? That we actually grew to have some contempt for it. And so a, a slight hiccup in the, uh, in the timeline in terms of understanding what, what people are really about and what makes us happy. It did produce some great action games and we get to keep that knowledge for forevermore. But Thankfully, that period of time has largely passed. What were some of the influences that creating a game like Epic Tavern seemed like a good idea? And what led you there? So that's, it's funny. You know, I was recently – we do these um, uh, development streams on Twitch a few times a week. And oftentimes we find ourselves trying to you – know, sometimes we're filling that time um, with whatever we can. And, and a, a thread that really emerged was kind of rehashing the history of, of development for Epic Tavern. So I have a little bit of, um, of recent experience with thinking about this. And so the, the actual concept came from many vectors. Um, but the, I think it, it's all kind of compressed in the line. Uh, there's fantasy football. There's fantasy basketball. Right. Why not fantasy fantasy? <laughs> and so that, then that line is funny, but it contains compressed within it kind of um, uh, the the combination of ideas, right? This, um, and it's going to sound weird because you know we started by saying it was a storytelling game, and maybe when I say fantasy football, you're not necessarily thinking about the story, um, but the fantasy football analogy in the video game industry has a really strong connection to games like Football Manager, of which they have one like every year, um, where you're managing uh, a team of football players or soccer players, depending on your point of view. And um, the neat thing about that is that it, it seems on the surface this very finicky management spreadsheet uh, systems analysis type of an experience. And we like that. In fact, many of the people that work on Epic Tavern are very fixated on those kinds of features. We play those kinds of games in our free time. Mm -hmm. But one of the neat side effects of those games, if you put a bunch of time into them, is that it's one of the few places where you can get this legitimately player-authored storytelling experience. Your choices in the midst of these complex systems, it feels, it feels like it creates proof that this story would never have happened without your particular choices. And so we really found that to be an interesting idea that we, uh, that we wanted to explore and partly bring that experience from the tail end of a long, hard technical exploration and instead put it on the front end of that exploration. 
And so we set about kind of creating this uh, storytelling, disassembling systems complexity monster. <laughs> and to, to summarize the, the game, and I, I've written about this a little bit on Twitter. I started playing it last month or maybe six weeks ago. Time is a blur these days. Um, I've... <laughs> I was kind of, you know, live tweeting my initial thoughts of the game and you uh, start out, there's a bit of a prologue, which I'd be curious to get your thoughts about that design choice of you kind of start out with this experienced group of adventurers coming from the tavern and uh, going on a mission and then some things happen and then you get an opportunity to start your own tavern and you have to manage that and you kind of slowly build up a roster of heroes that you meet as you're serving them food and drinks and you get to know their backstories and the more you get to know them, the more they sort of build an allegiance with you, you get to hire them on. And then the game gets into a really nice rhythm where you're in the tavern for a bit and then whoever on your roster, you can send them out on a mission. Then you go do the mission, which feels like playing D and uh, and I'm a big uh, Dungeons and Dragons player. So I think of it like the, they go on an adventure and along the way, they'll have a few encounters where it might be combat, it might be social, it might be a puzzle or something else. And then depending on how they roll, so to speak, how well they perform, uh, it's either success or failure, different parts along the mission. Then they come back to the tavern and you sort of kind of rinse and repeat through that cycle, uh, which it does have a, a bit more of a, okay, let me do one more thing. And that's what leads into the, oh, I've been playing this for 90 minutes. <laughs> The, the kind of the classic PC, just one more turn yes, exactly. uh, motivator. Yes. No, and, and I think, uh, you know, aside from some of the objectives of the game, which are definitely the storytelling, uh, storytelling through characters and um, maybe a combination, combining procedural and custom elements to try to create something that has both the positive trappings of kind of a custom crafted story as well as the player authored elements that can come with the procedural experience. Uh, the just one more turn stuff though, I think we, we did a um, uh, kind of an analysis that's separate from all of the other things and in terms of how, what are the right kinds of rhythms? You know, what is, how come I, I'm playing Civ 4 at 3.30 in the morning, um, you know, those kinds of experiences and really try to disassemble them to create the right kind of, I guess, tranquil, meditative, repetitive kind of loop that, that can be, that can kind of really get you in the zone and keep you going. Um, it's definitely something a lot of us have maybe burned a lot of hours into, and so maybe it gave us a better basis to try to recreate a, a structure that could do the same for others. What seems to be the things in, in the game that lead players to keep clicking on things and keep moving forward? Well, so that I think one thing is to avoid having any particular activity that takes a very long amount of time. Like if, if let's say you had in the context of Epic Tavern, we have these action points when you're in the tavern and those action points are consumed when you serve uh, drinks or when you talk to people about their backstories and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if there were a great many more of those action points, and you wouldn't necessarily be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel when you start the tavern phase. And so uh, a lot, I think the number one uh, kind of logic to be employing is that no one segment of the loop is 
so long in its perceived time that I lose sight of coming to an end when I get there. So now when I start on any step of this process, it's pretty clear what needs to happen to get to the end of this step. And since each step is only the fraction of the larger loop, then kind of it has its own momentum, right? It's got a, a forward rotating bias uh, to, its, to its use. And, and then at that point, it becomes just a matter of kind of pruning each of the steps. I mean, we have lots of errors and problems in our user experience, I'd say, uh, at this time that, we're, that we will continue to kind of weed out over the course of time to kind of just continuously allow for it to have an easy um, uh, uh, forward motion through the, uh, through the turn phases. Yeah, and the, just to hone in on some of the elements of the game, so I think I was counting this up today. I think I've run into 19 classes of characters so far, um, which nice. there's like hunter, weapon master, scout, lore master, ranger, priest, kind of all the classic uh, classes from, from D&D and other role-playing games. How many are there? I think there are 32. Okay. <laughs> so I'm I've, not mistaken. I've maybe hit about a little over half of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, the, one of the nice things about uh, creating a game that does establish situational context through text and describes the results through text um, is that some things like character class, having more of them is not, is not costly. I mean, if they had to have an entirely separate model, for example, adding a new class is very difficult and problematic. You know, there's many a uh, kind of a high fidelity 3D game that you'll see they have their three classes and, oh boy, they don't want to make another one because it would be, you know, 9% of their entire project's budget to have a fourth character class, which that 9% of their total budget would probably be like four times larger than all of Epic Tavern's budget probably too, by the yeah. way. And so how do you differentiate the, the classes? So the classes are different. The classes end up becoming a macro. Well, they have they, there's two purposes that are fulfilled. One, class establishes kind of a tonal imagination of the character and sets some of the character's features. They're, they're, they're kind of um, – the imagination of their, of their capabilities is just as important as their actual numerical ability to accomplish things. And – as much as possible, we try to kind of write into those uh, capabilities. So one, it establishes the narrative for your imagination of this character. And that's essential because partly as many things as possible, we need to do that with because one of the drawbacks, for example, of not having a model is that uh, envisioning this character uh, is much more up to the imagination of the player. And so now we need to create these kinds of like uh, now suddenly an impressionistic imagination modifier is of significant value to us. Or in a different game, it may not be nearly as relevant because it wouldn't make its way. It, it wouldn't. It wouldn't get above the radar, okay. especially when faced with, you know, eighty thousand polygons of detail and the ability to customize all this kind of like really subtle and interesting stuff with the character. And you know, we wouldn't. We weren't. We aren't. We aren't against doing such a thing. But generally speaking, all those kinds of approaches were out of scope for us. Okay. Wait, I'm, I'm in the middle of this explanation, though, right? I didn't get to the end of that. Yes. It's, uh, so um, the, the second thing that it does uh, in terms of what does class define is it defines the numerical capabilities of the character. It establishes their skills that they start with. Um, and, and as we go forward, the intent is that it would constrain potentially equipment use. It'll have uh, – there'll be certain um, – there's a whole – 
element of the game that we call traits. There are traits in the game, but right now they're purely cosmetic. Um, we have the game as one of the byproducts, at least for our approach to early access, has been that there's a lot of plumbing that's been put into place with the hope to fully flesh out that feature uh, in the future. And so some systems were built in such a way that they could be easily adapted to become other systems. And sometimes we express the, the, the direction we want that system to go in a very light format, like in the context of these traits. But kind of our aspiration with those traits is that certain classes will may very well start with a couple or they have a inclination to, as they gain levels, to acquire certain traits. So if a barbarian didn't start the game with a thing like toughness, and let's say a thing like toughness just does something like it reduces the amount of damage your hit points you take by a certain amount, that – Maybe every time they gain a level, they have like a 10% chance of acquiring that. And of course, over through the course of play and going through those encounters, a lot of those encounters have the power to assign uh, updates to those characters in the form of gain positive or negative traits. Um, and so a system like that could also be something that uh, varies the, the way character classes uh, play out. Yeah, and I, I noticed that I think early on one of the missions, sending my group out, and you know they came back. One of them was cursed, and it reminded me of playing something like Darkest Dungeon, where the going on the adventure, there's you know you can gain XP and maybe some equipment and whatnot, gold, but there's also maybe a consequence of, of doing that that lasts for for some time, uh, which I found I found that interesting. Yeah, I mean we were heavily inspired. Um by Darkest Dungeon. Darkest Dungeon, well, I mean, to be fair, Darkest Dungeon is a very bright success um, in the kind of history of um, indie games in the Epic Tavern development time frame. Uh, and it's also fantasy, and you also manage characters. Uh, I think the only difference that we wanted to add to the to some of the things that Darkest Dungeon did is just to make sure that we also have lots of really positive things happen, too. <laughs> <laughs> That said, yes. the, the, the darkness of Darkest Dungeon. <laughs> totally. And and the darkness of Darkest Dungeon is a strong selling point. It's well done. And even if sometimes it becomes outrageously frustrating, you're never going to forget those moments. Yeah. And so each of the characters you're talking about, the classes, how they kind of are different, there's sort of stats in four areas, um, combat, social, mind, and survival. And then each one of those four areas have some subskills, which I don't know if that's the language you use, but that's sort of how it fits in my head. So, for example, one of my highest uh, level characters right now is this paladin, and she has a high social skill, so is good at parlaying with people and things like that. Um, but under social is three skills of leadership, partying, which I always find funny, and charm. Um, <laughs> and so for each one of the areas, there, like for combat, there's... Uh, like melee weapons, range weapons, uh, I think combat expertise or something like that. So there's all these different values under there. And I'm wondering in the background, as you're playing through a mission, do those sub areas matter all that much or does it just come up to the like mind score, social score, combat score? So when things started off, it was fundamentally those four scores are all that really mattered. Okay. Um, I think that we've 
updated the game quite a bit, and uh, we never really wanted that to be how it played out. Uh, but we ended up having a lot of difficulty readapting the system of the game to accommodate what we really wanted ultimately, which was the way it works right now is that each – there are 36, I think, skills. Basically, I have this, this wheel – uh, and in the middle of that wheel are our four primary encounter categories, and that is the combat category, survival, social, and mind. And this, this was a really big part of what we, what we wanted to try to get out of the game. You know, we, everybody has a – generally, you know, if you're in video game development and you're probably a nerd of some sort, you have a certain relatively intense basis in fantasy storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so – all, you know, we start sharing our stories and what we're used to seeing. If you start analyzing it for any patterns, you see there's a huge shift when you move from like literature, movies, and TV to when you go into games. The moment you shift into games, suddenly everything is about combat. And that's because if you make a big system about combat, suddenly you got you to forgive all that work it takes because it's hard work and there's lots of complexity. Now all the stuff that happens has to be combat. And when you have things happen that aren't combat, it starts moving into a, either a non-existent set of systems or systems that are vastly leaner in their, in their kind of experiential footprint. And Clearly, in the context of the fantasy storytelling we've all experienced, this idea of characters socializing and them solving puzzles and them surviving kind of disasters of sorts, Mm -hmm. that they're all really kind of equally important in the course of the storytelling for these characters. And it's one of the important ways that, for example, that character that really can't lose a fight, for that character to have a dramatic arc of any sort, something has to happen that doesn't go the way they want it to. And then this kind of allows for that. And so we have those four major categories. And then each of those categories is broken up into a few different pieces. Um, I'm just going to go with the social quadrant of it, so it's not kind of burnt through too much time. But in the social encounter category, there are three subtypes, and that is befriend, deceive, and negotiate. And moment we've made these these kind of delineations, we've basically committed to writing encounters that fit inside these constraints. And then the idea is, because, well, let, I'll take it one step further, connected to, for example, the negotiate encounter type are the three skills, leadership, diplomacy, and business, which differ in tone and in imagination to the three skills that connect to the befriend social encounter type, which are performance, partying, and customs. So the idea is both befriend and negotiate encounters are social in nature. So any of the skills that you have that are in the social category will contribute to the success of this encounter, but skills that you have that are in direct alignment with the encounter type are worth double. And that's basically, that. that's a simple system in that regard. And so having Diplomacy is a skill is vastly better for negotiate than it is for befriend, but it's not going to be useful for a melee combat encounter, for example. Right. And yes. so with that, with that arrangement now, you have these characters, they themselves and their classes become focused on social mind survival or combat. And then inside of that, they have kind of their, their tonal variation in that like a, a performer is going to be better at social befriend encounters and a diplomat is going to be better at social negotiate encounters. But I'd still prefer a performer and my social, social negotiate encounters than a barbarian who's fundamentally focused on survival in our case and secondarily combat. And what's cool about the game, and I found this out almost trial and error to, to start out, is that you get a quest. Like as you're kind of getting to know your patrons, 
uh, in the tavern. Once in a while, a little thing will pop up over their head. It's like, oh, I can click on this. This opens up a quest. And you get the information about what the quest is, and it'll tell you what type of quest it is. Is it social? Is it combat? Is it mind or uh, survival, um, which is the fourth one. But within that quest, you'll have a lot of encounters, or depending on how long the quest is, but you'll have other encounters that maybe are social, maybe are, you'll, you can have a sprinkling of all the encounters within a social quest. So you can't just load up on characters that are good at one thing and expect to really do a good job, which, like I said, I found out the hard way. <laughs> but failure is enjoyable in this game too, so it's not like terrible things happen, but there's things that you can either succeed or fail. And it does encourage you to build up a roster and some teams that cover all four areas pretty well uh, because you never know what you're going to get when you leave the tavern, which I think makes the game fresh and interesting and uh, exciting each time you kind of start that part of the loop that's, okay, we're going to go on a quest now. It's really nice to hear you say that because we did spend a bunch of energy to try to make it so that people would see that. And I mean, to be fair, we are still struggling quite a bit with, uh, you mentioned how uh, failure can be interesting. Um, it is one of the essential pieces of the thesis that good storytelling requires characters to hit hard times. And so if in this, in this effort to disassemble storytelling, or if the game itself is the reassembler of storytelling, um, creating a context where players are tolerant of failure, where they see it, you know, the game, it auto saves. So we do some, you know, some, some, some hard efforts to, to, have people try to reverse their successes. Um, you know, it's easy to describe a bad story as one where everything that went wrong gets erased and replaced with a story that goes right, which probably describes most video game stories because as our characters go through it, when you fail, you reload the game and you do it again until you succeed. And then in the context of Epic Tavern, we're like, how do we build a system where the players aren't going to ever want to reload after failure? So, well, I'm that's one thing, but people will figure out a way one way or another. It's, 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 you know, we don't want to punish you for failure. What we want is for you to accommodate it and realize that it's a natural part of the flow for the characters that aren't you. And that's kind of another device we use. We have lots of characters and they aren't you, which allows for their ups and downs to be something that you can help with rather than something that you can rectify. Um, and we're, I think we've only been mostly successful, but we're going to keep on swinging the bat at that problem because if we can get to this point, in some ways, the ideal case would be that the user is going through the experience and sometimes literally makes choices that result in failure because they think that's kind of what's best for this character's story. And if that kind of a thing can start happening in people's minds that this, this imagination-driving toy that we put together is like uh, all the more effective and powerful of what we're at least trying to devise it for. Yeah, and it brings up something I was curious to ask about, because within that adventure loop, as you come upon an encounter, uh, it'll like some text will pop up and say, here's what's going on. So it could be you're, in, you're going down a road and there's a dispute between some people and you have to work it out, or it could be a combat encounter, any number of things. And I think in a previous interview, you said there's thousands or tens of thousands of possible thing encounters that can be, that can come up for players. And then whoever's on the quest, little actions will pop up and it's, it's again split into four options. So there's a, a balanced option, a aggressive, defensive, and precise. 
Precise. Yeah. Precise. Um, and I think as a player, what I've learned is probably my best chance of success is to go, I think, what's the fourth one? Precise? Because it's... Precise. Yeah. And I think I've just, that's become my default for a lot of things because it seems like the safest choice because I don't like failure. <laughs> uh, but there's other characters where if they're not that great at a skill and whether they succeed or fail is not that big of a deal, actually what I've learned is like, well, maybe I'll be aggressive with this character because if they succeed, then they actually get more points towards the total success or failure than not. Um, I don't know. How, how, what was it like coming up with that system and how have you seen players respond to it? So it's been emerging fairly slowly. You know, our development bandwidth is pretty narrow. So we've been kind of incrementally um, kind of updating and improving features mm -hmm. uh, in the systems of the game. That one in particular, by the way, there is a stance, that, uh, an action that you haven't noticed, which is actually because that list is a scrolled, scrollable list, underneath precise is an action called cautious. Um, now, I would say in the system overall, it is incomplete. And in its current state, that precise is probably a good default to use. Um, I think the only gameplay you start running into that starts branching you away from going precise is when you really maybe won't make it. Right. So if your chances of success are relatively low, now you're forced to take your kind of your heavy hitters and push them to go for aggressive just in hopes that you can overcome the difficulty value. Um, some additional actions that will be introduced in the future are ones where you, you can do a support action that will improve the role of the next person. Oh, I like that. And so that the sequence uh, that you make use of starts mattering more and more. And we want to be – we're mindful of creating kind of like complexity paralysis there, but we have no problem going – creating a certain amount of, of – of, space for players to min-max and get some, get some potentially crazy results. Uh, in our current, in currently what we're working on, one of the things that will be in the next patch, for example, is a, um, is a, is a, a randomized chest dropping feature for uh, when you succeed in the random encounters. Okay. And, and that that chest it has a, is, is likely to be better the more that you succeed on a given encounter. You might have found in your play experience that sometimes you completely over uh, blow through the difficulty of a given encounter and that that's not worth that much in the current logic. Um, but at least our design sensibilities, we aspire to make that actually a fun and interesting thing where, oh my God, I was able to defeat the difficulty by 120 skill power points and, um, and, and I get something for it. And now I'm kind of excited to see that happen again. Um, and then, and then it also, if you can do vastly better than, uh, than the default average, that also means now you give it a shot. You can try out things that are maybe way too difficult. Although we've been avoiding uh, adding too much difficulty in the game during the course of early access, uh, but as we make our way closer and closer to full release, uh, we'll be getting in, I guess, our true belief system with respect to difficulty and gameplay for the player. And one of the things that I, I've enjoyed about the game is as you're going along those quests and encounters that one of the rewards you can get is sort of a, a point boost in a skill, um, which and I, I haven't sort of been able to figure out what's going on behind the scenes, if that's completely random or if it's tied into certain characters or certain quests that like, OK, you have a chance to get a skill point here. But it's a nice it's a nice feature because it makes it feel much more. Alive as a system. Well, I mean, the I think one of the most important underlying philosophies 
is that the the path that the characters take has to change them. Uh, in fact, we might even be able to make a more general statement about storytelling in general that a story is better seen as a series of changes to a character than a character riding along a series of changes to the world. And so by that logic, uh, any feature that we can get that will modify that character as a result of their interacting with the uh, encounter is very interesting to us. And that one in particular is very important because now it means that as, you, as your choices with that character, where you sent them, and what they actually accomplish now influences some of the skill points that they get, which then modifies their capabilities at the end of the story. Um, you know, you mentioned a little bit earlier about the prologue in the game. There's this kind of first quest yeah. that's just a much higher difficulty with these powerful characters. Um, one of the things um, that that prologue does is it's the kind of setup for the singular large story arc in the game. Um, or at least we, we like calling that book one for Epic Tavern because we have kind of another giant arc in mind afterwards, okay. provided the audience, cool. provided we're successful enough, then the audience gives us permission to continue building it basically. <laughs> But in that context, then, uh, one of the ways in which we see these characters is that uh, your play experience in the first half of the game, let's say, is largely one of selecting characters for who's going to be a participant in the big showdown for the big story arc. And then your utilizing of those characters and gaining levels is building their backstory. And then part of what we're trying to create is that you've cultivated interesting backstories for these characters that happen to then be the agents of this heroic ending for a large story arc that we start at the very beginning. Yeah, and it's it's I, I like how... You, when you meet these uh, characters that you can potentially recruit, you sort of slowly get what their story is. Like, more or less, like the more you feed and uh, get them drunk, the more they're willing to give you information about, uh, you know, kind of their background. And that leads to different quests. And some of the quests that I've, I've enjoyed are, because some of them, it's just like a quest will pop up and it says, okay, here's, here's what you need to do. But there's some quests that will have one, two, I think, or some even four options. And I think having to yeah. – when that, those started popping up, I, it was this sense of, oh, I guess I can't do everything that there is to do in this game. I have to make some choices, which for me, I, being a completionist sometimes, like, oh, well, I wonder what's behind door number two. But I'm going to pick door three and just commit to it. And now those seem to be more peppered in the further I go into the game. I'm glad that there's some of that because I think if there wasn't that option, it would get a little stale. And that's nice that you do have to pick some options there. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. I think that, um, I think one of the, one of the thoughts or one of the things that we'd like to say would be that the game is choose your own path just at every level of the hierarchy and, and, and all of the sideways (laughs) versions of it as well. Like to whatever extent, you know, it's not always that you're going to pick whether you go left or right on the fork in the road. Uh, sometimes it ends up, you know, being very subtle things like I decided not to talk to that person in the bar, and instead I talked to someone else, and that became a character that 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 came along. And because that character came along, they had good skills in this random encounter that we ran across that I wasn't expecting, and then we totally nailed that encounter, which preserved my party so that when we got to the destination that we were more inclined to succeed. Yeah, and I think one of the first ones that came up that was like somebody runs into the tavern and they're being chased by it's the FCU. It's like the something crime unit or something. 
fantastical crimes unit. Fantastical crimes unit. And you have to decide, like, do you harbor this person, keep them safe, or do you turn them over to the authorities? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I'm sure it'll be interesting things either way. And I think I ended up saying, like, oh, yeah, just go hide in the basement. And it led on this new quest chain and stuff like that's cool. Like, I, I found that those elements in the game really interesting. Yeah, and we want to create, we want to, well, want to. We are going to be creating more of those hard decisions. You know, you mentioned uh, completionist attitude might have some difficulty with some of this, and we, we've been kind of a little bit worried about that because there's no way for us to get away from it. It's not, a, it's not the kind of game you're going to want to replay over and over again to actually catch everything. Right. Uh, and yet at the same time, we've definitely built the game so that your choices create uniqueness on – well, not uniqueness, but – specificity on many different axes uh, for your particular playthrough and that to truly maybe witness everything in the game may be slightly out of scope for any any reasonable player. And there's a few things that seem to be, like, because even right now within the game, there's a few things that it'll say coming soon or in development. So things like, I think, like rivals. So I imagine there'll be like rival taverns, which sounds like kind of a cool vibe potentially. Uh, doing different things with uh, the look of the tavern, like uh, I guess designing what the features are and things like that. Are those still are those things still planned? Yeah. So we have a in with respect to our kind of long term roadmap. Uh, in the near term, we have a small number of important feature changes that we have in mind, and then at that point, we'll kind of generally we generally feel have some confidence that'll create a complete experience, okay. and then we'll come out of early access. Uh, and those features really are um, a a following through uh, and finishing the features that relate to starvation, uh, supplies, and spirit. So it's kind of we call that the camping survival gameplay feature switch set. Um, additionally, there's some broken elements to the way in which money goes back and forth between characters in the tavern. I'm sure, there's you've seen that loot divvy screen at the end of a quest, and it's just kind of doesn't work. Uh, we have it working on our end presently, so that'll be working in the next patch. Uh, and that'll also feed into this idea of wealth rank for characters so that as they become wealthy, they act more wealthy, they buy things that cost more. And so some basic things wrap around that. And it's a simple kind of level up structure, same as their level, but relates to whether they're destitute, poor, wealthy, etc. Um, How high can and- characters level? Right now, I think the max is 20. Oh, well, okay. My folks are at 10. So like I said, I'm about 20 hours in. So, And it can take a long time. I mean, I don't even – 20 – everything's – right now, things are scaling exponentially as well. So it might be asymptotic to 20, or maybe it's really asymptotic, like practically asymptotic to 14. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, but the, a lot of that stuff will, will get tuned down and, and stretched out once we actually get ready to go to full release. Uh, I know it's a, it's a hot topic for a lot of our users, any user that has – because. The, the tavern does get clamped at 13, right. uh, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, so there's, I'm, there's I'm, a lot I'm of there now, yeah. Yeah, and, and it doesn't – right now, it's easy to get a lot of reputation. Um, and so that you might be moving through those levels in kind of accelerated fashion. There's been kind of patches where it's been faster or slower, kind of another, another one of our interesting experiences with uh, early access. We're not sure if it's the right call. It just happens to be how things played out. Mm-hmm. Um, a reminder, what – what am I in the middle of answering again? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just uh, talking you, about you all these know. different things. So. Oh, you, yeah. So you were talking about the um, – well, I'll just go with some of this kind of character long-term, yeah, sure. long-term progression My, stuff. And I interrupt you. So uh, sorry. Oh, no, no, no worries. Uh, I mean literally I could talk about any of this forever. And since we've been working on the game for a long time, it's all kind of like this 
uncompressed ocean of 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 <laughs> both wonderful information and sort of triggering stress information as well. But yeah, this idea of the characters gaining skill points and continuously gaining more and more power. Um, it our long-term goal for the higher-level content is that it get outrageously difficult, or at least these numbers of difficulty start, you know, scaling up and becoming exponentially higher. And that certain choices you make with leveling up characters over the long haul starts kind of shifting between whether I have kind of a jack-of-all-trades character or whether I have kind of like a focused uh, to solve particular problems types of characters. And that. As we get larger and larger rosters and they get more and more powerful, that they start becoming these, these cultivated tools. And then those, you, you won't actually have any where to go with cultivating those tools unless we create that content that has that high level of difficulty where you can start using them to kind of puzzle solve things. Yeah, because I think I, for me, I've sort of defaulted to, if I can, I try to even out so everyone's at least if they have the option for a skill, they're halfway decent at it, as opposed to ignoring one skill to just jack up another one. Cause it does seem like having folks who can do a little bit of everything is useful. However, if I started running into missions where I was like, Whoa, <laughs> this approach isn't working that well, then I would have to switch that around. Yeah. I mean, like uh, if there was suddenly a knowledge, a mind knowledge encounter that is suddenly like, 30 points more difficult than you were used to seeing in some of the other encounters, right? That'll start right. really triggering a lot of your analysis and calculation for how to kind of craft that party. Now you'll have to sacrifice one thing or one and a half things or something to try to make that a reality. It, we're definitely thinking about those kinds of gameplay patterns. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, the vast majority of our effort has been in creating this procedural, this cross between procedural and custom storytelling toy. Uh, and I like using that word a lot because the, the thing that generates the story is not, is not a, is not a game per se, right? It is a, it's this, it's this noise. It's this kind of takes a seed and spits out noise that makes sense for the seed. And it is this, it's essential driving variety that kind of fills in the gaps. And then we kind of connect that variety with, custom tent poles or, or posts that we stick into the ground. Um, we don't think like we're, we're not, we're neither possessed of the attitude that it's that fully custom story. That's the best experience. And we're definitely not in, we don't believe that a fully procedural experience is going to be the best story either. And that, so if we want to get knowing that if a player plays longer, they're committing more of their imagination and more of their life energy, that the things that happen later in the story, gain kind of uh, more gravity or have more weight. So proceduralizing elements is useful there because it can extend the length of the story, right? If we think about a resource expenditure, but without those kind of customized high points and trying to craft like a good intersection of, of dramatic elements, it's very hard to have a great story. I mean, it's very hard to have a story without that, right? And so like if we play a game like Dwarf Fortress, for example, where like everything, it's like it is truly procedural. Once in a blue moon, there's an intersection where like, oh, my God, that really got my imagination going. And then so on our side, we're just trying to flip that script and go like everything we're doing is crafting towards getting to those high points. Yeah. And one of the things I definitely want to mention before we, we end up here is that, you know, the game is it, it does have a lot of, of reading because there's a lot of text boxes that pop that pop up. 
it seems like the sensibility of the people who are writing this uh, just kind of right in my comedy wheelhouse. So there's quite a few encounters and some of them are, you know, maybe more serious and, you know, but there's also, I think just some nods to some pop culture stuff, just things I've grown up with. Uh, There's, there's, it's fun going through the game. It's not like super hardcore, serious, high fantasy. There's, I think there's a mixture of different elements. Uh, and I just want to say I appreciated that because there's moments where I would, I would uh, laugh about certain things and the way they were presented. Awesome. You know, kind of poking fun at tropes and fantasy and other things like that. So, Well, I mean, our perspective is that as a foundation, if you're going to spend a lot of time in a, in a certain headspace, it's easier to spend a lot of time there if it's a little lighter and there's little moments of laughter, right? There's some things to break up the intensity and that intensity really belongs in pulses that you know it's like let's have a moment let's let's make sure that that is intense and difficult perhaps like um i don't know if you got to the storylines in the kind of southwest part where there's been some kind of like a a uh, incursion of of large bugs yes there's a yeah. okay so that those quests and that content is much darker right it's yeah. like the road uh, you know um terrible terrible things are happening we're not averse to that. In fact, the, the lead writer on the project, a guy named Sean French, um, he, 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 his, you know, his, his wheelhouse is horror writing. <laughs> and so he, and so he's all about, so that. he wrote about the, bus. but at the same time, no, totally. Um, but we all fully appreciate how essential it is to kind of create a uh, kind of a receptive environment for us to, to be reading our words. And if there aren't moments of recognition and bits of laughter, that's, that's, that's what's going to wear the player down. So what are the, is there a, a plan for when this will be out of early access? Is there a date, a target, or kind of to be determined at this point? So um, uh, we had a number of setbacks earlier in the year and late last year, strangely enough, not related to kind of the, the global crisis. Um, uh, we're very much gotten back on track in recent times. Uh, we really want to see what these next two patches and how much time it takes us to get them out with that see that what, what that how long that turns out to be um, but otherwise then we are we are looking at unfortunately kind of a late in this year time frame to get to full release um, and the only reason I say that's unfortunate is that late in the year is is tricky for indie games uh, you know the the signal to noise ratio is is difficult to to Pete in. Um, uh, but that said, uh, as far as we can tell in our research and, and the way Steam games work out, um, that we have, we have pretty good confidence that things should work out reasonably well for us. We were, we were smart about not spending too much money to make this game during the course of its development. It's still a decent chunk of money. Um, but we don't want to get into a long call about the uh, business of, 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 of uh, deploying Steam games because that's <laughs> its own infinite conversation. <laughs> well, and you know, I, I do want to mention because you know I've interviewed some folks on this show in the past, and the tabletop game industry. I've interviewed, uh, we, we mentioned Darkest Dungeon. Interviewed uh, one of the designers from that game previously. I think if awesome. if, you, if you like D and D or Pathfinder or any games like that, if you've enjoyed games like SimCity in the past, even something like Baldur's Gate, where you're you know sending adventurers out and about, it's definitely enjoyable. I 
it's hard to believe that something like this didn't exist previously. <laughs> uh, you mentioned like the whole fantasy football type of angle of, you know, managing a roster of heroes and sending them out on, on missions. Uh, I've, I've been having a lot of fun with it and it sounds like you're and your team are committed to making the game even better and kind of more, more, uh, more complete. So I'm excited to see what comes out and I've, I plan to keep playing it. I'm dabbling in streaming. So I'm hoping to like stream and maybe, uh, have people chime in about about the experience so i'm glad it exists it's been a lot of fun to play over the last uh few weeks so so thank you for that oh you're welcome thank you for all the kind words uh it's been it's been a hell of a ride um and i think the reason why it doesn't exist is because it turns out it's actually quite difficult to make yes. and we just we took we took the we took the full brunt of that um Oh, something to add yeah. is uh, once you do get it all squared away, uh, something that we are very, very interested in doing is creating very robust Steam Workshop tools for the game. Okay. And maybe to the point of allowing players to almost entirely remake the game and introduce whatever stories and whatever characters they so desire, uh, we'd be very pleased to see people using this to express their imagination and have fun for many years to come. Well, there's such a community of, of D&D players and dungeon masters, and I think if there was a set of tools to maneuver or create things in that area, that I think a high probability to excite a lot of people. So that would be very cool. We think so. Yeah. Well, if, if folks have questions about the game or you know, how can they learn more about it, how could they contact you if they, if they want to ask questions or so um probably the very best place to go to get uh get your questions answered uh get into discussions relating to the game would be our discord channel okay. uh and that can be found at discord.gg slash epic tavern uh very straightforward get in there and um uh for example if you're playing the game and you run into problems please come by we will help you out and uh, I think we have a a Twitter account for Epic Tavern. I think it's just at Epic Tavern. You can also reach out to us on the Steam forums as well. Uh, that's a, that's a great way to um, uh, hunt us down and try to get any support if you need it, uh, and or get into conversations relating to the game, game design, or storytelling. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I, it's been a blast learning more about the game. Uh, excited to see. Uh, and experience where it goes going forward. I'll certainly be uh, be playing it, probably uh, tweeting out some screenshots and whatnot of my experience and what hijinks my heroes get up to. So uh, thank you again for your time. Thank you for having me. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking. Yeah, and best of luck going forward. 